you can open your Bibles to First uh, Corinthians. Uh, we are in, still in chapter one, and we've been uh, looking the last couple weeks a little series called "Messy Church: How Church Can Be Messy at Times," because we, after all, are all saved sinners, and that uh, tendency is still there, even though we are sanctified and set apart, holy unto Christ. And that's really what Paul has been dealing with. He started off pretty positive, talking about saints, talking about who they are in Christ, and then he lowered the boom and um, brought up problem in the church, that being the problem of divisiveness, the problem of division. And he continues talking about problems till the end of the book. So if you're one that says, wow, the, the church is full of problems, you're right. <laughs> Join the club. And uh, that's just the way it is. And so today we want to look at and, and start this new section of Scripture here, uh, beginning in verse 18. I'm going to read in verse 17 for us, just to make sure we keep everything in context. But we want to look at, over the next couple of weeks, the foolishness and power of the cross. You could call that the foolishness of God and the power of the cross. And we'll explain what that means in a little bit. But follow along in your Bibles as we read 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 17. For Christ did not send me, this is Paul speaking, to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is, is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As we read that, we see that Paul brings up one of the first issues that he had with the Corinthians after calling them saints he said, there's division in your midst. And he begins to talk about division, but then he continues for the next 15 chapters, basically, and talk about all kinds of issues they had. I mean, the entire book deals with problems in the assembly at Corinth. But the first problem, and I think the foremost problem, and the issue in a lot of churches today, is the issue of division. And we've been kind of looking at that the last couple of weeks, what Paul says about that. But this church was divided into factions. It was divided into parties. They were fighting against each other. They were quarreling. Last week, we saw that he even pointed out the parties who were um, the little groupies that were following individual teachers. He talks about some that say, I follow Paul. He was the founding pastor of this church. Others say, I follow Apollos. He was the one who replaced Paul when Paul left and went to Ephesus. And then some said, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then others, rather with their nose in the air, said, well, we follow Christ. Now, you think it would be an honorable thing to follow Christ, but it wasn't in the way that they were following Christ. They looked at themselves as 
self-righteous, more righteous than any other because, after all, they were following Christ. They weren't going to settle for one of these servants that God appointed to serve them. They were going to follow the master. And then he, in verses 13 to 16, he, he basically pointed out to us that, you know what, proclaiming uh, this principle of unity within the body of Christ is very important. Because he asked the question, is Christ divided? In other words, can you divide the body of Christ? Is it possible to divide Christ himself? No. And because we are part of Christ, we cannot be divided. And then he asked the questions, was Paul crucified for you? He implies his own name, puts his own name in there so he doesn't slight the other teachers. And by the, by the way, these teachers were not the, the ones causing this problem, as a lot of times is the case in churches. There's a lot of churches who have, you know, a, maybe a, a, a pastor who is very popular and has almost become a celebrity. And the people choose to follow that man rather than God. That has really little to do with the person they're following. And that was the case here. It wasn't like Paul was trying to get a bunch of people to follow him. That wasn't his point. Neither was Apollos, neither was Cephas. And so he pointed out that, you know what, this should not be. This is something that is not normal within the body of Christ. And he even goes on because they were saying, well, some of them were saying, well, I was baptized by this person. I was baptized by that person. None of them could say they were baptized by Christ because he didn't. (laughs) And I think God was wise in allowing it to happen that way. And then in verse 17, he kind of pointed out his priority to us. He said, look, I'm not here to baptize people. That's not my interest. That's not what God has called me to be, the baptizer in the church. But he says, the reason God has placed a call in my life was to preach what? The gospel. To preach the gospel. See, Paul wanted people to understand that being baptized wasn't saving you. Didn't matter who baptized you. It was irrelevant to your salvation. Now we would say that salvation or that baptism is a sign that you're saved. Do you want to follow the Lord and believer's baptism? It's a command. It's one of the first commandments that believers have, by the way, after they come to Christ. And baptism is basically an outward expression of an inward change. And you're basically making a testimony and saying, hey, things are different for me now, and I want everybody to know it. And back in Jesus' time, and even Paul's time, they didn't do it in the nice little warm waters of a baptistry like we have up here in front of friendly little people that you know, gathered to cheer on the one who's being baptized. They did it out in the marketplace. They did it in the river. You can still go to Israel and get baptized in the Jordan River. My wife and I, we did that when we were over there with David Hawking. It's a polluted river. It's gross. They actually have to put a filtration system where they do this little baptism thing because where it's not being filtered, it's so polluted. It's really nasty. Some people don't realize that. They didn't tell me that until afterwards or I probably wouldn't have done it. (laughs) So I've already been baptized. I don't need to do this. But see, baptism doesn't save you. And Paul said, hey, the only thing that that God has called me to do was to preach the gospel. And by the way, he even told me how to do it. He said, don't do it with words of eloquent wisdom. Eloquent wisdom. See, eloquent preaching draws people to the preacher. It doesn't draw people to the Savior. You can see that on TV all the time. Just turn it on on Sunday afternoons or anytime, actually. Christian TV. Some of these, these individuals who get on TV and are just very, very gifted orators. They look good. They probably smell good. Everything's great about them. And they can get up there and say all kinds of crazy heresy, heretical things. And everybody's just, wow, this is great. What an experience. Why? Because they're using eloquent words. They're using eloquent wisdom to draw people not to God but to themselves. And if that's the case, if that's the kind of preaching you're doing, it says it nullifies the cross. You know, there's a lot of churches today, modern-day churches, that won't even talk about the cross. 
They won't talk about the blood of Christ. They won't talk about sin because they don't want to offend anybody. Well, what do they talk about? They talk about how to balance your checkbook, how to have a happy marriage, how to stay healthy and wealthy and wise. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Christ, but that's what they focus on. Why? Because that's what people want to hear. They don't want to hear the hard message of the cross. They don't want to hear the message that they're sinners without hope on their way to hell. I mean, who would want to hear that? And so Paul points out here that if that's the kind of message you're preaching, you're, you're taking the power out of the message. Because faithful preaching is the preaching of the cross. And when the cross is preached, when the need of salvation is preached, when our sinfulness is preached, when our lost condition is preached, when the idea that we are hopeless, beyond all hope, steeped in our sin outside of Christ, when you preach that kind of message, it tends to make people think, well, what do I got to do now? It sounds like I'm in pretty bad shape. Yeah, you are. If you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in really bad shape. Because you have no way to have your sins forgiven. And one day, your heart will stop beating. One day, you will breathe your last breath. And they'll probably have a nice little funeral for you and put you in a box and put you in the ground. But it doesn't end there, my friend. The moment you breathe your last breath, you're ushered into eternity. Where will you spend that eternity? See, that is the message that Paul is trying to get out. The faithful preaching of the cross leads people to put their trust not in a a human individual or a, a human leader, but in what God has done in Christ. You know, if you're trusting in a religion, if you're trusting in a denomination or even in a church for your salvation, you're trusting in the wrong thing. The difference between Christianity and religion is basically religion teaches us that it, it base, it's based on what we do before God that earns his grace. Everywhere religion has some form of writing or some form of handbook or some form of do's and don'ts. And if you do these things, you'll make God happy. It depends on what you do. But in Christianity, it's different. Christ, that wasn't the message of Christ. He said, it doesn't matter what you do. It's a matter of what was done for you, that he died on the cross. And once you put your faith, your trust in Christ, for the first time, what you do can be a blessing to the Lord. Before that, the Bible says your good works are just like filthy rags. And so we have this church here that's divided. It's divided in in a variety of ways. But the portion here, verse 18, all the way basically through half of chapter 2 up to verse 8, it covers this foolish idea of of God's plan and the, the power of the cross. It's really laying down the gauntlet. It's saying, hey, look, if you're going to follow man's wisdom, here's what it looks like. If you're going to follow God's wisdom, here's what it looks like. It's a lesson of comparison. It's a contrast. What's the difference? Well, let's look first of all at the the idea that human wisdom is inferior, the inferiority of human wisdom. I mean, wisdom basically is, in the Greek, is, is two words, Philo and Sophia means the love of wisdom. My, daughter's, my granddaughter's name is Sophia. That's why she's so wise, I say. <laughs> wise Alex sometimes, but that's... Just... But that's what philosophy is. It's the love, not necessarily of God's wisdom, but of man's wisdom. 
And that's what Paul is saying, that, hey, I didn't come to, to preach to you in verse 17 some words of eloquent wisdom. The words there are, are Sophia Lugu, which means words of philosophy, you might say. That's not my message. And you say, well, how is philosophy bad? Once in a while, I'll talk to a college student and say, hey, what are you studying? Oh, philosophy. I'm a philosophy major. I'm like, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I said, well, what, are you t- what are you studying philosophy for? I think it's just ridiculous. You say, well, why would you say that? I said, well, what purpose is it going to serve you? You're just studying man's ideas. I mean, there's so many different philosophies. You guys can't even get it right. There's different philosophers, and the Greeks loved philosophy. That's what they did. They just loved it. They loved to talk about it. They studied it. I mean, there's, there's people that give their whole lives to philosophy. And here in the Corinthian church, some of these people, some of them were saved, some of them weren't, but as they came together in the church, they came out of that background. They came out of a, a very loving uh, background of philosophy. It all was about philosophy to them. If you talk to anybody who's a philosopher and you say, well, do you believe in absolute truth? Most of them will say no. They can't. It goes against what they believe. I mean, they'll say, well, ideas are right and wrong. That's basically, you know, human opinion. Why? Because they're isolated from the truth of the word of God. See, as a Christian, we would say, no, there is such a thing as absolute truth. It's right here in this book that God has given us. And so as we study the Word of God, we become more familiar with the absolute mandate of truth that God has laid down. Well, unfortunately, these Corinthian converts carried their philosophical backgrounds and factions into the church. Some of them even held on to their pagan philosophy and their pagan beliefs, and they were dividing not only regarding Christian leaders— but also regarding these different viewpoints of life. Today, we would say in the Christian church, they had a different worldview. You know, having the proper worldview is very important, by the way. If you're wrong there, you're you're wrong everywhere. And so these are people here in the Corinthian church that had trusted in Christ. They recognized that they were saved by grace through the cross But you know what? They wanted to add their own human little wisdom tidbits from their background to the message of the cross. John MacArthur made this statement. He says, a Christian has absolutely no need of human philosophy. None. None whatsoever. He says it's completely unnecessary in the life of a Christian. More often than not, <clears throat> he says it's, it's misleading. And here's how he explains it. He says, where it happens to be right, you might run into a philosopher that has a principle or something they're spouting that's actually correct. Well, how do you know it's correct? Because it agrees with what? It agrees with the absolute truth of the Bible. But when it's wrong, it will disagree with Scripture every time, and therefore it can mislead people. It has nothing necessary or even reliable to offer someone. By nature, it's speculation based on man's limited, fallible insights and understanding. And it always is unreliable. It's always divisive. That's why there's so many different philosophies floating around. These are man's ideas. These are human ideas. I mean, you got everything from people believing their God to worshiping a tree, believing it's God to whatever. You can talk about all kinds. You can talk about philosophy till the cows come home, especially here in the Bay Area. You have all kinds of things. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this. 
He talks about philosophy. Do you know the Bible talks about philosophy? It doesn't talk about it in a good light, but it does talk about it. Colossians 2.8, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. Philosophy is empty. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Generally, philosophy has nothing to do with Christ. It has nothing to do with the absolute truth of Scripture. And it creeps into the church, by the way, too. There are people years ago that looked at the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. Moses wrote them. That's what God's Word says. And some philosophers looked at that and said, there's no way Moses could write all that. We don't believe he wrote it. So we're going to tell you how it was written. So they went through and they made up this, their own philosophy of how the first five books of the Bible were written. It has nothing to do with what the Word of God says. You see it in the, the world of science. I mean, the Bible is pretty clear how the world began, is it not? God said. God spoke. He created it. It's, it, it's not like you have to read it over and over and go, well, I wonder what he meant by created. And the next day, well, what does that day mean? Well, it means what it always means, a 24-hour day. Well, we don't think it means that. There's no way somebody could just speak things into existence like that. We'd much rather believe that over millions and billions of years, some pre-slime of a thing climbed up on the, the shore and, uh, you know, re- decided it had to breathe, so it grew a lung and then, you know, turned into a human being. That makes sense. That's logical. Are you kidding me? That's such a fanciful story. I mean, uh, what are they drinking? It's much easier to believe, you know what? God said it to be true. He, he just created things. I mean, when you look at your body, you look at the, the eye, you look at the brain, you look at how everything works in perfect unison most of the time. It's amazing to think about your heart from even before the time that you were ushered into this world, even when you were a little infant in your mother's womb, was beating faithfully continuously, just the way God planned it to happen. Then the whole process of birth, just the way God planned it to happen. And then as your body grows and you learn and you grow, and it's, it's amazing just the way God intended it to happen. But they don't want to believe that. They want to in, inflict on us their human wisdom. I mean, Paul is basically saying to these philosophically oriented Corinthians, he's saying, since you have become Christians, you've been filled with God's Spirit. You recognize that the Scriptures are the truth of God. You don't have any more need for anything else. God has completely equipped you as a believer. He's asking them, did this philosophy help you when you were not a believer? Not really. You couldn't even agree on what to disagree on. And so now you're united around God's supreme truth, the revelation of Jesus Christ through us, the Word of God. Don't be split up by human speculation. Don't be divided by mere philosophies. And so we see that even today, that human wisdom, and usually, you know, Christians won't say, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm into philosophy. What they do is they take the Word of God and then they impress upon it their own philosophies. That's what happens. They add human ideas to the divine revelation of Scripture. And whenever you do that, you're in trouble. 
Because whenever you do that, what loses? The divine revelation of Scripture. In any setting. If you say, you know what, well, I believe the Bible to be true, but, you know, I, I think this philosophy, evolution, somehow that's got to fit. So what do they do? They come up with theistic evolutionists, people that believe God created, but they still believe in evolution, as if God really needs our help. I mean, give me a break. That's even a further stretch than just believing evolution, in my mind. See, today in our, in our age, unfortunately, we have made gods of several things, of education, of wealth, of human opinion, of status. We've, we've lifted those things to God, God's status. As a youth pastor, I used to see it all the time in families because, you know, they'd, a lot of times a kid would come to Christ and they'd be all excited about Christ and in their high school years and they start looking at colleges and we'd start to have the discussion. And they'd say, well, I want to go to a Christian college. Parents who are not believers, well, you're not going to a Christian college. What kind of education would that be? You need to be exposed to all this secular stuff. You need to, be, you need to get out of your bubble. And there's parents today that believe that. So they send their Christian children off to secular universities, and then in five years they're scratching their heads wondering what in the world happened to them. They're being filled with human wisdom. They're being filled with vain philosophies. And unless they are very, very, very strong in their faith, it overwhelms them. It's so much, so much better Take a couple years and enroll your child in a, a Bible college or a Christian university where they're going to get sound teaching. And you've got to be careful even there because a lot of the Christian universities are filled with a bunch of heretics. <laughs> so you have to be very wise about that. That is your stewardship of your child's education. And yet somehow, well, it, it won't look good on the resume. If they went to some Bible college, if they go to this university or that university, well, that's going to get them ahead in life. And after all, that's what it's all about, right? And getting the right job and getting the big house and getting the right money. And is that really what it's about? As a Christian, I would beg to differ. Now, there's nothing wrong with good education. But what I'm saying is don't overlook the obvious. Don't overlook the obvious importance, if not more importance, of Christian education. Don't be naive with that. Don't, don't feel that somehow just because you, you, you raised your child for several years in your Christian home that they, they have this great foundation of Christian faith upon which to build upon. Sometimes that's not the, the case. And so we have to be wise about this. We have to be careful Human wisdom, philosophy, has always been a threat to the Word of God. It's always been a threat. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The whole drift toward modernism that has blighted the church of God has and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. I mean, it began all the way back with Adam and Eve, if you think about it. what they do? They set their own judgment above God's. God told them something, and they said, well, we're going to do it this way. Whenever human wisdom, whether a definite philosophical system or not, gets mixed with divine revelation, revelation always comes out on the short end of that deal. You just have to be reminded of that. Well, what about the superiority of God's wisdom? Where do we see this? He says right there in verse 18, look at what he says. He says, for the word of the cross, the word of the cross. What's he speaking of? Not the word cross. He's speaking of the word of the cross. 
He's speaking of the message of the gospel. He's speaking of the work of Christ. He's speaking of all that in the word of the cross. What's interesting, if you are a diligent student, you can see the difference here. In verse 17, Paul says, I didn't come to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And I came to do it not with, what's he say, words of eloquent speech. See, one of the differences between man's wisdom and God's wisdom is that with man's wisdom, you got a lot of it. That's why he says words, plural, of eloquent speech. But when it comes to the message of the cross, look at what he says, verse 18, for the word, singular, of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. There's a response here, two response, twofold message, response to the message of the cross. First of all, he says those who are perishing. Well, who is that? Unbelievers. It's a graphic description of those who reject Christ, who reject God's offer of salvation through the cross. And he says this, this word, this message of the cross is folly. It's, it's foolishness. The Greek word is, we get the, the word moron from, you moron. It means nonsensical. It doesn't make logical sense. You find this out every time you share the gospel with somebody, do you not? When you share the gospel with somebody, they're like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, so you're telling me that if I just put my faith and trust in this guy dying on a cross, somehow magically my sins are all forgiven. That doesn't make logical sense. They count it as foolishness. But what do they do instead? They turn to their own message. <laughs> They turn to their own words of eloquent speech to comfort their, their hearts. See, the word of the cross in, includes the complete gospel message and work. It's God's plan. It's God's provision for the redemption of mankind. I mean, when you read through the Bible, you're basically reading through the message of the cross. It doesn't matter whether you're in the New Testament or Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what's it do? It points to the cross. So when you stop and think about it, it's all about the message of the cross. It's all about the gospel message. And when people hear the message of the cross, to those who are not believing it, they look at it and go, this is moronic. This is silly. Who would believe this? When, when Paul first came to Corinth, he continued to face all these different philosophies. Even when he faced them in Athens, in Acts 17, it tells us about that. But he says he had determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, I'm not going to talk about your vain philosophies. I'm not here to discuss that. There's some people that find it desirous to study philosophy. I say, why? Why? What is it going to do for you? Maybe puff you up a little bit, because maybe you could have a discussion with somebody about philosophy. That's why the Greeks liked it. It's not going to do anything for your eternal soul. It's not going to do anything for your relationship with God. In Acts 17, verse 32, it says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead that they were preaching to them, it says they began to sneer. <laughs> they began to mock it, like, oh, come on. You really believe that? I spoke to a girl a couple weeks ago, and she said that she asked me just a point-blank question. She goes, do you believe in reincarnation? And I said, no. Really? 
Are you serious? You really? I mean, she was like flabbergasted. She found somebody that didn't believe in it, I guess. I don't know. We had a good conversation. She asked me why. I said, because as a Christian, it's not in the Bible. Plus, if you just think about it, what does that do for you? I mean, really, I had her thinking by the time our conversation was over, that's for sure. But that was her philosophy. See, human wisdom cannot understand the cross. It cannot understand the message of the cross. Even Jesus' own disciples couldn't understand the message of the cross. Do you remember in uh, Matthew 16, verse 22, uh, Christ just got done speaking, and he's telling them that he's going to be crucified. And Jesus, or Peter, took Jesus aside. It says, and he began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke God. Wow. He said, God forbid it. Lord, this shall never happen to you. You remember how that turned out, right? See, his own understanding of the Messiah, his own philosophy of the Messiah, had no place for that Messiah on a cross. That Messiah was to lead them into battle, to overthrow Rome, to take back what was rightfully theirs. See, Peter's wisdom, his philosophy, his understanding ran contrary to God's wisdom. And anything contrary to God's wisdom is what? So the work of Satan. That's why Jesus turned to Peter and rebuked him. Remember what he said? Get behind me, Satan. In other words, those kind of thoughts have no place in the mind of one of my followers. He says, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting, listen, your mind on God's interest, but man's. I feel that's what we do so many times when we plan our future, whether it's our education, whether it's our career. We're focused on man's interests, not God's interests. And he still didn't get it. Remember when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden? What did Peter do? This ain't going to happen. Took out his sword, tried to cut somebody's head off. He ducked and cut his ear. Jesus healed him right there on the spot. Really, only after the resurrection and the ascension did Peter understand and accept the cross. He now had the Spirit of God. He had God's wisdom. He no longer relied on his own understanding of this. Matter of fact, he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He completely got the message of the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, Peter wrote, we, you are healed. See, whether you're Jew, whether you're Gentile, it's irrelevant. If you're not in Christ, the message of the cross is offensive to you, It's nonsensical to you. It's moronic to you. It makes no sense whatsoever because you're an unbeliever. But then he says, the other response is to those who are being saved. Those who are being saved. Our salvation is a process. You know that. We're we're continually being saved each and every day through the process of sanctification, through the process that God is completely He's transformed us. Judicially, we declared righteous before God. But you know what? We're still here on this sinful earth with this sinful body, and we're still dealing with sin every day. It's a process. And one day, that process will be complete. One day, we will have our glorified bodies and our glorified minds. We will be completely in the presence and united with Christ. So that's the process of those who are being saved, those who are putting their faith, their trust in the message of the cross, believers. We'll look at the result of that. He basically says it's the the power of God, the, the dynamite of God. I mean, if you're a believer and you believe God is powerful, 
Think about our salvation. Think about the idea that God saved you. He chose you. He saved you. He completed that transaction on the cross. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, future. And then you have some people that say, well, I think you can lose your salvation. (laughs) Hello? I like what David Hawking says. You're, You're in the hand of God. You know how big the hand of God is? And he goes on and he says, you might be able to jump from knuckle to knuckle, but you're not jumping out of the hand of God. And that is so comforting. Like we sang this morning, he will hold us fast. It's not up to us. It's up to us to follow him. It's up to us to come to him for salvation. And when that transaction of salvation is done and we're transformed, we're brought from the the darkness of sin to the the brightness and the pureness and the holiness of his light. That's the power of God in your, at work in your lives. We could go around the room if we had time and say, tell me how you were saved. You know what it's going to testify to? It's going to testify to the power of God in your life. Some of you may have been really, really, really bad off. Bad Bad hombres, as our president might say. Bad folks, you were steeped in your sin, but you know what? It wasn't, big, wasn't too big for the, the power of God. He said, no, you know what? I chose you before the foundation of the world. You're going to get saved. I'm going to save you. And all this gang stuff, all this drug stuff, all this outlaw stuff that you've been involved, that's going to be stripped away from you, and you're going to be made brand new in Christ. Old things are going to pass away, behold, everything is going to become new. We all have that story. We all have that testimony because it testifies of the power of God. See, all men are either in the process of being saved or they're in the process of being destroyed, lost, perishing. Each, each group will live forever, just a matter of where your address is going to be. Is it going to be in heaven with God, or is it going to be in hell in utter torment? Your view of the cross, your view of the message of the cross determines where you will spend eternity. Well, he says here in verse 19... That this is, he lists some reasons here why this is kind of such a, a big deal. And he says in, in, in verse 19 and 20 that the, one of the differences between human wisdom and, and God's wisdom is God's wisdom is eternal. It's, it's permanent. It doesn't change. It lasts. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29 Verse 14. He quotes from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. Just turn over there quickly. Isaiah 29, verse 14. And this is Paul using the scriptures here to really help his readers understand what he's saying, that this is a permanent, this wisdom that we have from God, this understanding from God is permanent. He says in verse 14, uh, in verse 19, he says, for it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah twenty-nine fourteen. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of the wise shall perish. And the discernment of their, their discerning men shall be hidden. Paul says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. He wants them to know that human wisdom has no place in the plan of God. It says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, it says in the ESV. And then he asks the question, well, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? It's a rhetorical question because he asks it himself, has not God made foolish? The wisdom, he answers it himself, 
of the world. He's emphasizing the fact that the wisdom of men will perish. It will be destroyed. Ultimately, it has its fulfillment in the last days when all of men's philosophies and objections to the gospel will be swept away. Christ will reign, the Bible says, unopposed, unobstructed, as the Lord of lords and King of kings. Revelation 17 tells us that. And all of man's wisdom and logic and understanding will be done away. It will become a, a bunch of ashes. But the prophecy in Isaiah also had an immediate effect, a fulfillment. There was a king, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and he was planning to take over Judah. He was threatening Judah. And the Lord told his prophet Isaiah, hey, let, let the children of Israel, don't worry about this. Don't, don't be fearful about this guy because the king's plan is going to fail. <laughs> but it's not going to fail because of your king, King Hezekiah, all his advisors, They're going to be telling the king what to do when this king of Assyria attacks. Don't listen to them. That's human wisdom. That's human philosophy. And that's why he points out to them, he says, the wisdom of their wise men will perish. In other words, it's it's the power of God. I am the one that's going to deliver you, not King Hezekiah and all his myriad philosophers and advisors. Even the discernment, it says, will be concealed in verse 14 of Isaiah 29. It says that Judah would be saved solely by God's power. That's how we're saved, right? By God's power. There's no human help in our salvation. We don't add anything to our salvation Well, how did this work out? Well, you never want to go up against God. <laughs> the king attacked. It says, basically, Judah would be saved by God's power, not man's help. And the angel of the Lord, listen to this, destroyed 185,000 men of the Assyrian army. Tells us that over in chapter 37 of Isaiah Verse 36, 185,000 soldiers wiped off the face of the earth. You're also given a full account there in, in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Can you imagine, as a king, you want to protect your people, you have people that give you advice, and and God says, don't listen to anybody. I'm going to take care of you. And he did it, it tells us in verse 36, and the angel of the Lord went went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Wow. One angel. It wasn't even God. It was just the angel of the Lord. What an amazing thing. Look at the end of that verse in verse 36. It says, when the people rose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Some translations say, and when they arose early in the morning, they were dead. You say, well, wait a minute. How'd they arise if they were dead? It's talking about the people that lived. Didn't wipe them all out. It just took 185,000. So apparently some people lived through this slaughter of the angel of the Lord. And when they woke up, everybody else was dead. Talk about the, the power of God. That's the same power, by the way, that Paul wants us to understand clearly here in this text. You don't want to empty the, the cross of Christ of that kind of power, because if you do, 
<laughs> there's nothing left. Because it's by the power of God that you're saved, he says. And so he says, hey, you know what, all this stuff, I'm just going to wipe this out. And then he asks the question there, where is the, where is the uh, wise? A lot of people believe different things about this. Who are these people? Some people say they're wise men from Egypt or some people say from even Assyria, from uh, who knows. But the idea is, is that they had sofas, they had wisdom there. It says, where is the scribe? Some people say these may be the, the Jewish teachers of the day or the debater of the age, those who are skilled at debating and arguing. Where are all these people? And he answers the question himself. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, they look like fools. They look like fools. The wisdom of the world, you might, we might, in our mind, look at that as professional experts. You hear it all the time on the news. Well, the experts say. I wonder, who are these experts? Experts tell us. I mean, do these people have a name? Are they just making it up? What's going on? Solomon tells us in Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way which seems right to a man. See, these are not men that are just diligently going down the wrong path. They think they're going down the right path. They think they're going down the path to life. They, you know, that's where their mind is. Their logic takes them there. So it seems right, but Solomon says, but its end is the way of death. See, it, it seems logical for us even as Christians, to say, yeah, you know what? We want to invest and we want to grow and we want to have more resources and we want to do all that. That seems logical. Until you're found out like the guy in the New Testament and building up his <laughs> storehouses of wealth. By the way, you're going you're gonna to die really, really soon. So all this stuff that you stockpiled here, has not, it's not going to mean anything to you when you're dead. See, I believe that the church of, of Christ needs to understand that. Are we investing in here and now? Or are we investing in all eternity? It doesn't matter what, how much. We're not putting a dollar amount on it. What is your mindset? Because the only thing that you do, all that you do for Christ will last but what you do here in this world for yourself, it's not going to last. It's not going to have any effect at all on your eternal state of being. And so we have to be wise about how we spend our resources and use our resources. Because logic would tell us one thing, but God's word tells us another. I mean, think about this. And Beak and I, we live in a house on 212 Jetter Street. Used to be owned by a guy by the name Bill Stone. I think he greeted here at the church at one time. He said he's a real tall, lurking kind of individual. I don't know why I think of him as like an Abraham Lincoln kind of guy, you know, just big and tall and lanky. And he greeted at our church for years. He was married to his wife, Bernice. I don't think she came to church much. But one day, Bill Stone dies. I mean, logic would say, <laughs> if you don't believe me, ask your spouse. If you own a house, when I die, what are you going to do with the house? Well, what do you mean? Logic would say, well, honey, you would get the house. You're the beneficiary. That's not what Bill Stone did. <laughs> Crazy as it was, what did he do? He left his house to the church. What? What about his wife? Oh, he set up a, 
fun for her to take care of her. Took care of her basically until she passed away. But the idea that that man would not leave his house, their house, to his wife when he died, what was he thinking? Most of us would say, what a horrible husband that is. That's what the world's logic says. But I believe that Bill Stone had a further mentality, an eternal mentality. He was not trying to care for his wife. Obviously, he provided for her. But I can't tell you what a blessing that decision by that man has been to our our church as a whole, not just Ambik and I because we live there. What, a, what an incredible insight. See, sometimes we need to look beyond the horizon here on earth and realize, what are we, what are we called to do as believers? Because God's wisdom, God's logic, it's permanent. It doesn't just fade away. It doesn't change. We don't have to look at the professional experts. That, by the way, refers to all three, the wise, the scribe, and the debater, all those people. Because their, their wisdom is temporary. We also says here, and we'll just touch on this quickly, God's wisdom is powerful. Verse 21, 25. He says, for since the... For since in the wisdom of God, in other words, in the plan of God, in the philosophy of God, in God's insight, the world did not know God through wisdom. What's he saying? Paul's saying, you know what? God set this whole plan of salvation up. And he said, the way that this is going to be communicated, the way that you're going to be able to come to Christ, it's not through vain philosophy. See, this salvation thing, this transformation thing that happens when you become a Christian is not something you can figure out. It's not something you sit down and you, you study and you go, okay, well, let's see, I got two more, two more sections, two more questions to answer, and then it all fall into place. It doesn't work that way. This is something that God does on our behalf. This is something that the power of God takes care of. He saves us. He transforms us. That's why the wisdom of the world is so foolish. And so Paul says, in God's plan, he made a path that you could come to Christ, but it wasn't through your wisdom. It wasn't through your logic. It wasn't through your understanding. As a matter of fact, it was through the folly of God. It was through the folly, the moronic, nonsensical gospel that we preach It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It's the power of God. It's God who does this saving. And he uses some pretty ridiculous things to do it. You and I. I mean, if I was God, I would have just said, okay, I chose everybody. Boom, you're all saved. Boom, we're in heaven. And cut out all this stuff. But that's not what God wanted to do. He said, no, you know what? I'm going to create this plan where these people who were utterly steeped in their sin, they have no hope at all. I'm going to draw them. I'm going to drag them to the cross where they have to bow their knee before the Savior. Because I set my love upon them. They're going to, they're going to acknowledge who Christ is. They're going to declare Christ to be their Savior and their Lord. And at that moment, I'm going to totally remake them. I'm going to transform them. I'm going to change the way they think. I'm going to change the way they act. I'm going to change the way they speak. I'm going to make them a whole new creation in Christ. Because that's a testimony of how lost they really were. And then rather than just take them to heaven, the moment you were saved, I mean, that would be a good plan, right? You get saved, and boom, you're out of here. I mean, what a gracious thing. Well, that's not what God did. Now, I'm going to let them live here on this sinful earth with all these other sinful beings, themselves still dealing with sin, 
but I'm going to give them the power of the word. I'm going to give them the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to begin to make them more like my son through the process of their life. And it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be trials. There's going to be tribulations. There may be suffering. They may have to give up their life in that process. But in the end, be assured, I'm going to hold them fast, and one day they will be delivered into my presence holy and pure as a bride, the bride of Christ. See, that's what God does. That's the power of God. That's his plan. It's not our plan of salvation. It's God's plan. It didn't come through the wisdom of man, but it comes through the foolishness of the cross. It comes through the idea that you're going to actually believe that somebody died 2,000 some years ago on a cross for your sins. Yep. Well, the Jews weren't that way. What did they say? Well, we demand a sign. The Jews demand signs. Show me, show me. That's what they did when Jesus was there. And you know what? Even that whole idea or that philosophy, you've got to show me before I'll believe. What did Jesus do when he was here on earth? He showed them time and time and time again. What was their answer? Well, we can't dispute the miracles that you're doing, but you know what? You're not doing it by the power of God. You're doing it by the power of Satan. Remember that? They saw it firsthand, and they still... Couldn't come to grips with it. They couldn't figure it out. He says that the Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. That's all they're about. Well, philosophically, how does this play out? That's what they wanted to know. We're not interested in that, verse 23. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. That's it. Well, how does that play out to the Jews? It's a stumbling block. The word there is scandalon. It means something you trip over. I mean, of all places to die, on a cross, the Messiah of the Jewish people? Are you kidding me? They couldn't comprehend that. That was beyond their logic. It wasn't until Paul, who was Saul, could comprehend that. Do you remember that? When, when Saul was lost in his sin, what did it take? It took... The risen Lord literally coming back out of heaven and appearing to him on the road to Damascus. Only then did he acknowledge his need of a Savior. And he repented and he followed Christ. So it's a stumbling block to the Jews. The Greeks, they just look at that as idiocy, foolishness. Oh yeah, you're really going to believe this stuff? But to those who are called, those who are believers, what is it? Christ is the power and the wisdom of God. That's what he wants us to understand. It's in Christ we experience the power of God. It's in Christ we experience the wisdom of God. If you're outside of Christ, my friend, you're in a world of hurt. Because there is absolutely no hope for your soul outside of Christ. None. You can try to figure it out till the cows come home. What you need to do is you need to turn to God, repent of your sins. It means, means a change of mind. You're not trying to figure it out anymore. You're saying, you know what, God, I give up. I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to put this on you. If you're struggling in your unbelief, make it your prayer, Lord. I believe in God. I, I do. Help me where I don't believe. Help me in my unbelief. That's a legitimate prayer to pray because God will. Verse 25, he says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. This is just God saying, You know what? Even when I, if I could, act foolish, even my foolishness makes you guys look like a bunch of morons. That's how bad off you are. Because it's wiser than what you could come up with on your best day. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's a blessing in and of itself. The idea that God is stronger than us. Who would want a God that is not stronger than you? Who would want a God who's not wiser than you? What kind of God would that be? be a God you can manipulate. 
That's what people do all the time. They create a God in their own mind that they can manipulate. They turn God into what they want God to be. That's not the God of the Bible. I pray that as you look at your life, you're not seeking the philosophy of men, the wisdom of men, but you're wholeheartedly, with every ounce of your being, running after the wisdom of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God for you, here, right now, and not just for this current time we live in, but with a mindset that, you know what, I want something that's going to last for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, Lord, even the message of the cross seems like foolishness to so many people. It seems moronic. It seems silly, nonsensical. But that just shows us that this is not something we can figure out. It's something that you divinely inspire us to believe, that you change our heart, you change our mind, you transform us, you open our eyes, you awaken us from the deadness of our sin. And you make us alive to Christ. If there's any here this morning who's yet to experience that, I pray that they would have a burden on their heart. That they would come before you daily, begging you to forgive their sin. To save them, to transform them. That's how serious this is. All eternity lies in the balance. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We could be here today, gone tomorrow. You see it happen every day to people. And yet, all of our plans, all of our purpose, everything's wrapped wrapped up, it seems, somehow in this temporary world, making our life better now. Father, I just pray that you would change our hearts. Help us to repent of that attitude, even as believers. And help us to look for ways we can invest in in eternity. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.